Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 318th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world this week from our studio in Hollywood, California. <clears throat> I hope that all our listeners in the U.S. had a fantastic Thanksgiving. We had our Countdown Motion Pictures lunch, and it was terrific. So, of course, yesterday was Cyber Monday, and a record $3.5 billion in online sales. And that followed an extraordinary $5 billion plus on Black Friday last week. Wow, that is around $9 billion in two days in online sales. Now, more importantly, if you've sped up big in the last few days, then today is Giving Tuesday. So please dig deep into your pockets and give generously. Many organisations such as Facebook and Microsoft are matching donations, so this is a great opportunity to support those in our community who need assistance. I've got to put in a plug here. I'm involved with uh, the Australian Theatre Company in Los Angeles, who's a fantastic organisation that gives up-and-coming Australian actors and producers and writers and directors and stage people an opportunity to show their wares in Los Angeles to the powers that be in the movie and theatre business. And we are always looking for money. So if you go to the Australian Theatre Company website, you'll find how to give today. And uh, if you do, Microsoft will match it. So please go, Australian Theatre Company, on Facebook and give generously every penny goes to supporting artists. Now, do you ever wake up in the morning and think, oh, screw working today, I just don't bloody well feel like it. I've got a lot to do, I know, but I'll get around to doing it tomorrow. You know, procrastination sneaks up on most people when they're tired or they're bored, and people avoid working all day, only to go home and work late frantically trying to finish what they could have easily completed at work. Does that have happened to you? I know sometimes I wake up and I look at the um, jacuzzi and I think it'd be nice to spend a bit of time in there and it's a lovely day. I might go for a walk. Um, Good day for a nice fish lunch and end up at the end of the day, I think, what the hell did I accomplish? Not much. And that's just procrastination. Now, with the holidays approaching, the highest season for procrastination is upon us. It's even more difficult to get work done when you're stuck at the office and you're wishing that you were home enjoying time with family and friends or off skiing or doing anything except working. Still, procrastination can become crippling at any time of the year. And the problem is that procrastination magnifies stress, reduces performance, 
and leads to poor health. In other words, procrastination is a great way to screw up your life. There is absolutely nothing good about it. A recent study by Bishop's University found a strong link between procrastination and hypertension and heart disease. As procrastinators experience greater amounts of stress, engage less in healthy activities such as exercise and proper diet. So we cannot overcome procrastination and improve our health and productivity unless we're able to overcome the negative mental habits that lead us to procrastinate in the first place. There are five frequent excuses that we use to help us procrastinate. So I'll just run through them for you. The first is, I just don't know where to begin. I must admit that often when I'm faced with a major task or if I'm preparing for a speech, I worry about where to start. Because I worry about where to start, it's easier not to. We often freeze like a deer in the headlights when confronted with a difficult task. And, you know, for most of these tasks, we need all the time we can get in order to do it properly. There's no sense wasting valuable time by becoming overwhelmed by the complexity of the task. When something looks too difficult, simply break it down into shorter periods. Before you know it, you've accomplished something. One thing out of the way, and now you're into it. The task becomes much more doable. In my case, once I've, start, once I've started to work on a speech and I get into the swing of it, I find that I really enjoy working on it. Now, the second excuse we use is that there are too many distractions. For most of us, getting started on a large project is a challenge. We do irrelevant tasks that distract us from the real assignment. You know, we answer emails, we make calls, we check the news online. We do absolutely anything we can to avoid the elephant in the room. Work. <laughs> being busy is not the same as being productive. Just remind yourself of what will happen if you continue procrastinating. And that's a pretty good way to make distractions less appealing so that you can get off your ass and get on with your work. Now, the third excuse for procrastinating, and this is a lousy one, is that it's too easy. Tasks that are too easy can be dangerous because when you put them off, you often underestimate just how much time they're going to take to complete. And once you finally sit down to work on them, discover you haven't given yourself enough time to complete the task properly. So if a task is too easy, draw connections to the bigger picture because these connections turn mundane tasks into a fundamental part of your job. For example, you know, you might hate data entry, but when you think about the role that the data plays in the strategic objectives of your department, that makes the task a little bit more worthwhile. The fourth reason for procrastinating is I don't like this task that I have to do. It really sucks. Now, procrastination isn't always about a task being too easy or too hard. Sometimes you just don't want to do it. Rather than put them off, which achieves 
absolutely nothing, make it a rule that you cannot touch any other project or task until you finish this one that you dread. Try challenging yourself. Try to make it fun or a challenge. How can you achieve your task more efficiently? How can you change the steps of the process and still produce the same result? You know, bringing mindfulness to the dreaded task often gives you a new, fresh perspective. The last reason for procrastinating that I would like to discuss is the I don't think I can do it reason. You're assigned a new project, but you simply cannot get started. You cannot get past thoughts of failure. What's going to happen if I blow it? How am I going to do this? Could I be fired over this? It can reach a point where avoiding failure seems like the best possible option. But procrastination itself is a failure. It's a failure to utilise your innate talents and abilities. So shift your mind to a confident direction by focusing on all the positive things that are going to happen when you succeed. When you believe you can do something and you visualise the positive things that will come from it, you equip yourself to succeed. So let's just review what we've discussed. Fighting procrastination teaches us to fully engage in our work, get more creative with it, and ultimately get a hell of a lot more done. So don't procrastinate. Get into it. Pretend you like it because if you go about it the right way, you just might. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got somewhere over 1.7 million daily subscribers and it takes just 30 seconds and every day we tackle different subject. We look at advances in medicine, new apps, new technologies. We look at subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain. You know, it's free and the information you get from it is invaluable. It's really gratifying to see the tremendous response we get and the number of companies that enrol all of their senior staff as an education tool. This was recently done by a big group in Australia who put all of their senior staff on the, on the newsletter list. So thank you. I really appreciate it. If you don't get it, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol. You really should. It will do you a lot of good in your business, irrespective of what business you're in. Now, Google's just added a set of features well, a couple of months ago, specifically targeted at those who are really concerned about their security. As you know, there's been a whole heap of hacks this year. And we keep on hearing about all the big guys, but there are millions of little guys who get hacked. Little guys. They also get hacked. And uh, Hackers can do a lot of damage to somebody who's small. So you can now lock down your account to a degree that no other major tech firm has ever offered directly to users. Google's new advanced protection, this is a setting for Google accounts, makes it harder for hackers to break into your sensitive data on Gmail, Google Drive, YouTube, or any other Google property. The opt-in ultra-secure mode 
is intended for businesses in highly competitive industries, politicians, officials in any sort of business, high net worth individuals, activists, dissidents, journalists, anybody that has sensitive data. And the systems are designed to reinforce every possible weak link that hackers could use to hijack your account. Logging in from a desktop requires a special USB key, while accessing your data from a mobile device requires a Bluetooth dongle. All non-Google services and apps will be unable to breach into your Gmail or Google Drive. Google's malware scanners will use a more intensive process to quarantine and analyze incoming documents. If you forget your password or lose your hardware login keys, it is very difficult to regain access. Now, this is designed to foil any intruders who would abuse that process to circumvent all of Google's other safeguards. But it will make your life a little more difficult. So don't forget your password or lose your hardware login keys. Users will have to have their own universal second factor or U2F key. One USB key for their desktop that costs around 20 bucks and one Bluetooth LE enabled key for mobile that's closer to about 25 bucks. Google says it supports any keys approved by the FIDO Alliance, the group that manages identity and authentication protocols. Now, these devices represent a significant step up from the purely digital two-factor authentication that's a hard word. I don't know why I'm struggling with it. That has become the Silicon Valley standard. Now, unlike one-time SMS codes, which is what we get now, these tokens can't be intercepted on the carrier network or obtained by hacking someone's smartphone. The U2F key performs its own authentication step. I did it. With Google's site to check it's le- that it's legit, and only then supplies a key that logs the user in with no need to type a code. So only those physical keys, along with a password, are going to unlock your account. If you lose them, you can't use a printed backup code in your wallet or ask for one to be sent to you. So Google needs to communicate very clearly to users that advanced protection security requires a real change in people's habits, namely keeping very careful track of two physical slices of silicon, but that its draconian restrictions are going to reap worthwhile security gains. But if having your email penetrated represents a career or a major issue for you, protecting it Well, that's probably worth carrying a couple more keys in your pocket because if you lose it, somebody gets in, hacks you, it can make an enormous business, not only to enormous difference, not only to your business, but also to your life. The reason I wanted to replay an interview I did with today's guest is because he's a great guy, he's very funny, and he's a fellow metal member. 
His name is Kenny Aronoff, and he's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated recordings and played on over 300 million records sold and 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. I mean, that's phenomenal. Think about that. Played on over 300 million records sold and 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. I doubt if there's anybody else who's done that. He began playing with John Cougar Mullencamp and has followed that up with Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, The Rolling Stones, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Sting, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, John Fogarty, and a million more. He is a serious player and a bloody funny guy. Really funny. And I'll be back with my mate Kenny after this short break on the Bob Pritchard radio show from Hollywood, California. This is the place where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where for the last five years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 330 of the world's most interesting business people. And we talked about what they do what challenges they faced, and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. You know, doesn't matter what you do, it's really difficult to really make your mark in the world and be successful. And the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and different roles and to learn their keys to success. Now, the reason I wanted to talk to today's guest is because he's a great guy, he is really funny, And he's a fellow member of Metal that I've mentioned on this program a number of times. His name is Kenny Aronoff, and he's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated recordings and on over 300 million records that have been sold and 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. That is not a bad feat, right? He began playing with John Cougar Mellencamp and he's followed that up with a few also friends like Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Rolling Stones, Gaga, Mars, Sting, Dylan, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, 
Johnny Cash, Mashing Pumpkins, Rod Stewart, John Fogarty. You get the picture. He's pretty talented, right? Okay. What Kenny learned in the process of making his dreams a reality is now a message and achievement and inspiration that he brings to audiences around the world as a speaker. Now, what the world needs is more fucking speakers, right? Because every, every speaker that's out there takes one job away from me. However, he wants you to become a rock star in your life and in your business. He's just released a book called Sex, Drums and Rock and Roll, which begins when he was a youth in the Berkshires and the Midwest, through his early inspirations to his serious classical and jazz study, and that gave him the foundation to be able to play anything. Now, the failure of his first rock band in his early 20s freed him up for an audition with John Mellencamp, and that changed his life. His work with Mellencamp catapulted him to the top of the charts with hits like Hurt So Good, Little Pink Houses, Jack and Diane, and set the scene for the remarkable career that he's had. Hiya, Kenny. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. I love it. Thank you very much, man. I'm honored that you had me come on on such short notice. Well, the fans that don't know, I, I we just we just met not even a week ago. Yeah, that's right. And here we are. Very best, it. best buds. <laughs> well, you know that's kind of the way my life is, man. It's carpe diem, man. You don't why wait to do something you can do today. I I agree entirely. Well, now, you've said that writing sex, drums, and rock and roll ranks as one of the most challenging experiences of your life. And I thought it was interesting that when you were with Mellencamp, he regularly maintained rehearsal hours from 11 a.m. till 11 p.m. with a five to seven break five days a week. Now, that's sort of really being disciplined. Now, you said you dedicated 14-hour days to the book. Did you get that? Discipline from Mellencamp, or have you always had that sort of discipline? No, my, no a, a lot of my discipline came from the, the five years of training I had in uh, classical music at university, and four of those years was at Indiana University, which was the number one music school in classical music in the country, right. the largest music school in the world, and my teacher there and uh, some other teachers, you know, demanded nothing less but perfection. It's like, um, which I find there's a lack of, of that type of drive and, and intensity. Um, I mean, I don't see it as much as on students today. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but that was back then, that was just the, that was the only way. That was the way. And they were there to, uh, if you didn't measure up, you were weeded out. And I, my DNA and my personality rose to that occasion. Right. I also was, you know, I was into, I was a three letterman jock all through high school. So I understood discipline from coaches demanding, you know, you know, 150%. The first time I learned discipline when I was in my junior year in high school and I was afraid of um, passing chemistry. And, and in my family, everybody went to college. So I knew there was no way out. I would be, <laughs> I be a disappointment. So I was not, you know, going to school is about hanging out with chicks, uh, hanging out with my my athletic buddies and my music buddies, and then going home afterward. And after school, it was sports. And then it was a little bit of homework at home, and then it was rock and roll band rehearsal. Yeah. 
And and I the fourth ingredient was academics, and I finally got it together in that chemistry class. I realized I I had to pass, and so I at that moment I when I opened the book, I realized I'm not going to turn the page. This time, I'm not going to turn the page until I understand everything on that page. And long story short, I busted my ass. I got a lot of help from my teacher. I got an A in chemistry. Then the, I took got an A in physics and A in uh, advanced math. And that set the tone for me to understand what discipline is. And discipline is, discipline is just basically doing things you don't necessarily want to do, but it gets you the results you want. And once you've learned it once, you can apply it to anything. It's, you know, it, when you're suffering through this discipline, if you are, what gets me excited and motivated is where I'm going. That's yeah. where I keep my eyes, where I'm going. Yeah. Now, I was, I was in the rock and roll business through the 60s and the 70s, and I wrote a book a few years ago about those times. And, you know, you really have to live them to believe them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my big problem was trying to remember when I sat back 40 years later or whatever, and I'm sitting there trying to remember what the hell happened and when right. did it happen, what did I dream up and what did I imagine and what was right. real. How did you remember what happened to come up with a draft of a 600-page book initially? Well, that's a good question. Um, I kept calendars or you know day runners for every year from 1977 until present. Mostly so I would know which session, which gig, where I had to be, if I got paid. You know, I would check mark <laughs> if I got paid, you know, of course. I understand. And the, the miracle was I, I didn't throw them away. And then the other miracle was I found them. And that's when, because the writer that I was writing with first was, um, he came up with the great questions, but I just felt like they were, we had to have some sort of organization. And that's when I went started looking for them, found them, and then I, I was... I was set free. There was a couple years that I, I think I was missing them. So I had to go. I did other things. I went on my my website and saw the records I'd done, the live tours, and filled in the blanks. Believe it or not, some of the challenges were the social life because, you know, my career has always been number one. That has been my mistress. And I have always put that ahead of everything. So I had to try to, I mean, I never wanted to write this book. It was I was convinced to write it. And the reason why I didn't want to write it because I knew it was going to be a pain in the ass and that it and I knew that I was going to have to take charge of it at some point. Right. But I got talked into it because it, they made it sound like, well, the writer said, "Man, you just dictate this stuff to me." And he made it sound like he turned it into an Oscar, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it worked that way. But that's what I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about myself because I don't look back that much I only look forward because what's the point looking back absolutely I agree but now that I have looked back that's what made me reevaluate my life and go like well how did I do this why can't he earn all that's where I came up with the seven keys to a successful life and career because those were the seven things that made me successful I had to I wanted to organize like why how I would not have done that at this point in my life if I hadn't written a book. So the book became a lesson for me and now I'm writing the next book which is based on those seven, you know, keys. Yeah, those that they keys. yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? It was a four-year process and when you mentioned those 14, 16-hour days, those were on my days off 
on tour with John Fogarty. And, um, you know, I mean, I had a deadline. I was six months late. I tried to buy the book back to bury it. They convinced me not to. They said the editor will fix it. And he did. And the reason why I spent so much time writing it was because it wasn't in my voice enough. I felt like it was someone else's voice. So I, I basically went over every single page over and over and over and over again. And when I felt like it wasn't in my voice, I rewrote it. Rewrote everything. Yeah. Um, so the second problem that I had when I wrote my book was waiting till my son was in his twenties and my mother passed. Um, oh. You know, wives are yet another issue. Oh yeah. <laughs> how, how did you? You know, I'm sure you've had one hell of a life out there. How did you decide what to include in the book and what to leave out? Well, Bob, <laughs> you're nailing it. I mean, the challenges were my two divorces the two relationships I had with women that, you know, we're all good friends right now. And the challenge was how to deal with that and then in the consider the present uh, relationship, my wife, Georgina. And um, those those two things were a big challenge. And of course, the Mellencamp divorce, I call that a divorce too. And what I decided was, at first I wrote kind of everything, some pretty yeah. wild stories. I was, you know, I was the guy that lived for the moment. You know, I, I mean, I was not the most honorable guy in my marriages. You know, we were young. The audience was young. Girls were throwing their underwear at us. And we weren't Motley Crue, but we were close. <laughs> and um, we were just being guys, you know. Um, and we were all too young to be married. You know, we shouldn't have been married during that time. And uh, so what I ended up doing was I was that was the biggest challenge, trying to figure out how am I going to do this? where I'm honest, but respectful. And so what I did was I left out, and I did the same, by the way, with partying. You know, I didn't <laughs> have to list every single substance, you know, and, and and so I decided that I would not, I didn't have that many scenes in the book, uh, were, were very detailed scenes of wildness. I implied that it was happening enough so you knew it was happening. Yes, stuff yeah. went on, but I didn't need to list it. it what, this wasn't supposed to be that kind of book. I love the title, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, but the book isn't primarily about sex, even though sex is the first word. And I clarified that right at the beginning. Yeah. If you're looking for the, the, um, the book where the drummer has sex with 4,000 women, this isn't the book. But I did say it. <laughs> if you're looking for the book. Only 4,000. Jesus, I thought you were a good player. Well, God, you're a big that, disappointment. I know. <laughs> horrible, horrible. I've, and, and, uh, you know, my mom said, I had to warn my 90-year-old mom. I said, listen, mom, there's a scene with me with two lesbian girls. They pick me up. And she goes, why did you have to say such a thing in your book? I can't believe you did that. I said, mom, <laughs> you should see the stuff I left out. <laughs> This is like the, this was the, the compromise, you know. <laughs> and I felt I felt that if I didn't have some of that in there, yeah, who know me and know that whole sure. scene wouldn't take me seriously. So I tried to be classy about it, you know, and and still be honest. And you don't have to tell every detail. That's not my. Yeah. That was my point of the book. Yeah. Well, being with a couple of lesbians, that that's pretty classy. Um, <laughs> I thought they were real classy. <laughs> now, to be successful as an entrepreneur or in the music business, it's bloody hard. 
And, you know, yeah. both have really high failure rates. Of all the people who started off in the rock and roll business, very few of them make it through to the end of the tunnel. And the failure rate in business, particularly with entrepreneurs, is about 97%. And it's what? probably pretty close in the rock and roll business. Yeah. So what are the most important you know, if you're sitting out there now and you're a young entrepreneur and you're listening to this, what are the most important attributes that you need if you're going to be successful? Well, the the the, the, the three given, and I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. First one is self-discipline. It all starts there. And as I explained, self-discipline is doing things that you don't necessarily want to do, but you get you hopefully will get the results that you want. Yeah, from self-discipline. Hard work fueled by passion and education. That's my second key. Hard work is like, that's a given, man. If you do nothing, you get nothing. It's like math. Zero equals zero. Yep. So you got to do something. You have to. And, and, and just anything. Make a phone call. Um, get on the computer. Do something every day. Forward motion. Hard work is like a vehicle through life. It's like my a car or a plane or or whatever you use to get somewhere. That's what hard work is. Yep. And then passion, fortunately for me, I found my passion at a very young age. I want to be a drummer. I want to be in a rock band. And, and then education, we have to keep learning. I mean, you have to keep learning because things change so fast. But okay, those two guys, yeah. Yeah. The third thing is, you create a plan that you execute to reach your goals. A lot of people have ideas, but they don't follow through. And all these three things, by the way, this isn't one year or five years or ten years. This is a lifetime. You know, a teacher, when I was at Indiana University, said to my mom, first day I got there, she was concerned, like any mom would be, says, you know, Mr. Gaber, that was my teacher, do you think Kenny's going to make it? Do you think he's talented enough? Uh, you know, uh, what do you think? She just looked at my mom and he went, Mrs. Aronoff, ask me that question in 10 years. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> and he didn't say the F word, but what he was saying was, it's up to Kenny. Yeah. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. I can't guarantee you anything. It's up to Kenny. And guess what? 10 years after that year, 1972, is 1982, I'm with Mellencamp and we won two Grammys and I had basically two number one hit singles, Jack and I and Hurts Are Good. My career as a rock star was launched. Oh I had made it, but that was just the beginning. Um, so those three things, self-discipline, hard work, fueled by passion, education, and then you know creating a plan that you execute to reach your goals is is the foundation. Now, here comes the bigger thing here. Why Kenny Aronoff? There's a lot of great drummers. Like you said, the, the, the percentage rate of being successful is extraordinarily low and, and you know, not being successful is very high. And yeah. that doesn't mean you're not a great musician. There are some breaks I got with John Mellencamp, but I made my success. That guy fired me in LA after being in the band for five weeks where I was I didn't understand what the purpose of a drummer is with a singer songwriter or a band of this nature that is is to be played on the radio right. my vocabulary was limited in that area so when we got into the studio after only being in the band five weeks 
they kind of picked up on that. The producer wanted to get the record done. Back then, you built everything around the drums. Sure. Everything. So the feel, the sound. So, John, here's a crucial, crucial moment in my business career, as you want to put it. And I had no idea that I was this guy. You know that saying, fight or flight? Well, I'm fight or fight. <laughs> I'm Bill Belichick, like I said at Metal, the guy and the Patriots, the guy at 21 to 3 at halftime losing, is not looking at the score, but thinking, what can we do to win this game? So intuitively, when John was saying, you go home, I was going, nope, 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 nope. I screamed at them. I said, I'm not going home. And I scrambled to negotiate a deal that would be suitable for the both of us. And it, it was like, I was like, God, I didn't even know what I, it was just coming out of me. And I went, yeah. well, am I still your drummer? And he was perplexed and was looking at me like, what's he getting? And I went, am I still your drummer? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, well, I'm going to stay here. And um, yeah, I'm going to watch those drummers play my parts. And I'm going to learn from them and benefit. And you're going to benefit. <laughs> Because I'm your drummer and you don't have to pay me. That was the key word. You don't have to pay me and I'll sleep on the floor. And that's exactly what I did, except I did get a bed. The point is, if I'd gone home, who knows what happened. Yeah. The other point is, wow, that's an interesting character, characteristical trait about me. My character was to fight for what I passionately wanted. And there's always a way to negotiate something. Basically, I'm telling everybody out there, if you get fired, tell your boss you're not fired. No, just joking. <laughs> you can't fire me. You can't fire me. I'll work for free. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about um, having a plan. Now, in your business, as in most businesses, um, things change very quickly. How do you plan ahead when you don't know what the hell's going to happen tomorrow? Well, you have to have a, a you have to have a, a, an immediate plan for the present, but you have to have your eyes constantly watching like the trends, what's happening. Yeah. And it also a key factor is what resonates in you because you're always going to do what's passionate and desirable for you. You'll do that the best. So you got to be honest with yourself. Bullshit everybody else, but be honest with yourself. If you yeah. don't, if you're not honest with yourself. You may not make it because no, you've well, you got. Yeah, I mean that's the eleventh commandment. Don't bullshit yourself. Yeah, you know what I mean. Be honest with yourself. Be just be. Admit to yourself what you are and what you're capable of. And um, so yeah, the the trends in music. Like I mean, look at. I mean, I've got all these gold records, and like you said, I could have thirteen hundred on my walls if I bought them all from the records I played on. The thing is, that has already happened. That. It does. It's not bullshit, but it's not. What is happening now? They're not making records now, uh, or very few, or it's not a commodity like it used to be. It does. Yeah. Nobody buys them, you know. So that is like changed. I still have a studio because it's my brand. I'm going to record seven songs on two different artists on Saturday, Sunday. I'll be doing three different bands, four more songs. Monday, I'll be doing five songs from another band. That's a that's pretty big. Uh, clump that's a lot of work in recording in these days and yeah. that's in my studio I I heard once when the the, the budgets were great a, 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 a project coordinator said hey Kenny if you happen to be in LA I wasn't living here yet 
uh, I have a project for you. I went, what do you mean? Wait, 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 wait. I said, what do you mean if I happen to live in LA? Are the session budgets changing? She said, yeah. I got an apartment the next month. So now I'm investing in me. Yeah. I didn't have to pay that $1,500 or get a rental car up until that point. But I was willing to do that to make sure I didn't lose you know, my market share as a session guy. Yeah. Eventually, I, I had to sell my house in Indiana, and I moved out here. Eventually, then I saw the budgets go down, down, down. I went, I can't not record. That's my brand, touring and recording. So I got a studio and invested about $100,000 in great equipment, and I've kept that going. And then I've gotten websites. You know, I've got a very, very expensive website now. and, and Good website. Thank you, and um, I'm uh, and that took a year and a half, you know, of tweaking. It's still not done the way I want it. I got to do a few more things, but the point is, I made moves in the business. I don't, I didn't change the rules. The rules changed. I yeah. adapted to the rules, and you know, my seventh step and key is staying focused and stay relevant. I mean, like a good example of somebody who didn't stay focused was Kodak Film. They got out of focus exactly. and then. You know, I mean, I mean, and, you know, I mean, somebody else could be trying to do the same thing I'm doing there. I'm blessed with that. I had already made a name for myself. But, man, sometimes you could be looked at as, oh, he's the old guy. He's washed up. So you've got to be able to. There's so many factors involved. My number six key is a healthy life is a wealthy life. I mean, mental, physical and emotional health. Is number one. If that goes, everything else goes. It's good, yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm blessed with good genes, but man, I work at it. I think about what I eat. I think about exercise. I think about uh, I got an eight uh, eight step uh, a healthy life kind of guide. We don't have to get into it now, but th- there are things you do that you have to do to be. You know, I'm 64 in March, and you know, I, people are asking me. At 20 years old, how do I keep my endurance going? I'm like, you're asking that at 20? So th- there's a lot of components. I know I've, uh, I've this, the answer to your question is very long, but no, it's I, good. people to get a feel of, th- it's not like you make it and that's it. As a matter of fact, this is a big problem with corporations now. I have a, a buddy of mine who's part of a team that goes into corporations Keep people doing what they did to get successful, to stay successful. There's a famous golfer who won seven, seven PGA tournaments in 10 months, seven. And he, they asked him, why, how do you do this? He said, because I'm still practicing six hours a day, seven days a week. The same thing that got me to win my first PGA tournament, I'm doing to continue to win PGA tournaments. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So. Which artists inspired you the most musically? Doesn't have to be somebody you've worked with, but who was your inspiration? Oh well, my story is this: I would, you know, when I was a little kid, there was nothing to watch on TV. We had a black and white RCA with the rabbit ears and a tin foil on it. We got snow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh well, we got one and a half channels. I never watched TV. So me and my brother and sister were out playing and my mom screamed at us one day to come into the family room. Of course, I thought I was in trouble. Yeah. Getting ready to get spanked or something. (laughs) And they're on the TV with the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. That, I went, 
I had never seen anything or felt anything like that. And um, so I, I, I naively asked my mom to call the Beatles up and um, get get me in the band. <laughs> and um, handed that guy for you. <laughs> the funny thing is you've worked with McCartney and, and with um, Ringo Starr, so you, you're well, sort of halfway there. Well, um, at that point, I didn't know that. so I, <laughs> And then I was mesmerized by uh, Ringo Starr on the drums because me being a hyper-energetic, athletic guy, I was just drawn to the, the energy of the drums. And I asked my mom for a drum set, and I got the same response. Which was zero, <laughs> and, then, um, and then I said, "You know, I want to grow my hair like those guys, and I, I definitely want those girls chasing after me." And you know, I loved the whole thing. I was like, "Sign me up!" So she didn't call the Beatles. I didn't get a drum set, but in two weeks, I started my own band, and I I was working, uh, making enough money. I took a loan from my parents to get a snare drum and a cymbal. I stood up and played. The band was called the Alley Cats, and like you said. The, the, the beautiful end of the story is 50 years later, I'm playing with McCartney and Ringo, the two remaining Beatles, honoring them for that same show, the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> and it was like, so I go, dreams do come true. Yeah. But so not by accident. Not by accident. I made it happen. Yeah. To be relevant. If it's to be, it's up to me. You know, huh? if it's to be, it's up to me. You can't, uh, you, know, you can't rely on anybody else. If it's Absolutely. to be, it's up to me. Yeah. Which which artist that you've worked with has the most commitment to their craft? Somebody who's absolutely fanatically dedicated to what they do. Probably well, all of them, but who's, probably all of them. But who some of the ones that really, I mean, the ones I played with that really stand out. Bon Jovi, seriously, as a businessman and as a singer, he's a workaholic like me. He can't stop. John Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater, you know, the yeah. guy's from some of the greatest songs ever, ever written and recorded. Yeah, his uh, kids went to school with my son, so, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So I've, I've met and spoken with John many times. Oh, okay, cool. And 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 Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins was right. an intense, focused, driven, obsessed uh, guy. And all these people built like empires, you know. Sure. Um, you know, Mellencamp, same way. You know, I mean, Bob Seger. I mean, but they all, yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all committed. Springsteen, for sure. Yeah. Al John, for sure. What, um, you were telling us the other day about your frenetic schedule, and I couldn't remember where you started, but I know you ended up in Germany or somewhere over a period of three or four days. But what, how do you... Can you give us an example, and how the hell do you keep that up? All right. Well, here's the thing. There is no no in my vocabulary. I will fight to get everything done, which is is good, but it can be a little bit stupid because i got to prioritize sometimes the, the, the more important things. But the story you're talking about was it was only like, geez, a couple weeks ago, if not less, I did a gig with a band I played with on and off for 26 years called the Bodines yep. uh, in Las Vegas. I was supposed to fly to Mumbai that day, but I actually bumped the flight to Mumbai back just so I could do that one show in Vegas with the Bodines on on uh, February 8th. On February 9th, I flew Vegas to L.A., L.A. to Dubai, Dubai to Mumbai, landed at 2 a.m. on February 11th. 
I got to bed at 6. No, I got to bed at 8. In the morning, woke up at 10. Rehearsed from 11 to 2. Went back to my room. While everybody sight, was sightseeing, I decided, you know what? Don't push it, buddy. You you Because this was just the beginning of the trip. <laughs> so that next day, I had to get up at 6.30, 7.30 breakfast, 8.30 in the car, eight-hour rehearsal and sound check. Back to the hotel to pack. Went and did the show. Back in the hotel at 11.30 p.m., slammed a couple of drinks down with Billy Gibbons, got my clothes, and went to the airport, and I was on a plane at 4 a.m., uh, 50 hours later from landing uh, to Dubai, Dubai to Houston, and in Houston was a private jet waiting for me. Guy picks me up, brings me the jet, we get in the jet, and we fly to San Antonio. Two and a half hours later, I'm on stage with John Fogarty. <laughs> The San Antonio Rodeo, but it keeps going. The next morning, I wake up and I'm on Don Henley's jet with the Fogarty Band, yep. flying to New York City. Thank God that was a night off, and I'm trying to catch up with all my business. Constantly, yep. always doing business in the morning, at night. The next day, we had a show outside of New York. The next day, Connecticut, and the next day, I flew all the way across the United States back to L.A. And the next day, I met you. That was last Saturday. Where's Kenny Aronoff going to be in 10 years' time? Well, 10 years' time, I'll be speaking and writing books. I, that's where I see myself. It's interesting. Uh, I was approached to do a documentary and a TV show. We'll see if that happens. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying taking my life experience and... I guess one way of saying is I'm monetizing my life experience sure. by speaking, writing. Um, I'm open to it, – it feels like I'm just going to the next level. Not, I'm not saying it's better. It's just at the next level. You take this experience, you have wisdom, and you also are ready to do something with that information and that facility. Yeah. And one way so far what I've seen – is the speaking thing, which is I have a show, it's a, a movie, and, a, and then a live performance that segues into me speaking, and then I interweave my message. I want to deliver, and I'm constantly working on it, a benefit for my audience that they can take away something that they re learn from me, if not reignite in them what they already know, because I say it in my way, and, uh, you know, give positive energy out and get paid for it and move on to the next thing and maybe that'll lead to some more TV and some other stuff but there's no retirement in my uh, in my uh, schedule Kenny thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show now you can learn more about Kenny at Kenny Aronoff that's K-E-N-N-Y-A-R-O-N-O-F-F dot com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. Kenny Aronoff, boy, what a dynamo he is. We we caught up last uh, Saturday um, just for a chat and um, he just finished speaking somewhere for thousands of people and doing a show and, wow, he just he, – his calendar is just absolutely full. Um, we're trying to talk him into going back and playing at the um, baked potato just around the corner here in, in Hollywood and uh, – when he does, it's a small room. It's only probably holds about 120 people or something. It is magic. I'll let you know when it, when, if we finally talk him into it. Now, we urgently need to totally change the way we think about every aspect of business. You know, everything that we know or thought we knew no longer applies. And whether it's leadership or corporate culture or community citizenship, management, marketing, advertising, or no matter what it is, we need to address quite extraordinary change. The world's leading thinkers, Singularity University in Silicon Valley, they estimate that in the last 10 years, we've only advanced 1% of the technology revolution. And in the next 15 years, we're going to go the next 99%. That means, let's take 10 years, for example, we're going to be exposed to over 2,000 times more information and more change than we're getting today. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, but I have trouble keeping up with it. In fact, I can't. But increasingly, leaders will have to be a visionary, inspiring the market and their employees. Investor demands are going to change from steady management and incremental change to transformational, disruptive and dramatic change. Cloud technology is going to interconnect everyone from management to employees to investors and suppliers. Transparency and faster in every possible direction. CEOs are going to be more like inspirational leaders like Jobs and Musk than business managers like Jack Welch. With the traditional CEO role probably being carried out by the COO role while um, the CEOs are out there inspiring. Leadership's going to change from protecting the status quo to extending innovation capabilities. Leaders are going to be challenged by information intelligence, not information management, a totally different thing. They're going to be challenged by platforms to enable new value chains and integrated ecosystems, not IT systems management. I'll be challenged by business transformation and accelerated growth, not just cost management. Now, millennials will move into positions of authority, and that'll change the values of the corporation and transform the whole attitude towards life-work balance. You know, they have a totally different attitude, and there'll be a, an emphasis on life first, Organisations' lifespans will be reduced from, what, around 45 years in the last generation to about 10 years in the next generation. Research has shown the rapidly increasing importance of the triple bottom line, 
as community becomes increasingly aware of and concerned about not only the environment, but also the concept of assisting those that are less fortunate. I think after the Trump era, there's going to be a big swing back the other way to more caring about the community. The triple bottom line is the concept of not only generating financial returns, but also simultaneously creating social and environmental returns. In order to attract the top employees, investors, and generate sales from consumers, companies are having to increasingly take into account their complete impact on society and the environment, not just their impact on the economy. Businesses will have to assume responsibilities that go well beyond the scope of simple commercial relationships and a lot of the undoing of protections and social caring that are taking place in the United States at the moment will be reversed in this swing back. Um, Good corporate citizenship will increasingly provide substantial business benefits in areas like reputation management, risk profile, risk management, employee recruitment, motivation, retention. Um, There'll be more learning and more innovation Um, Competitiveness and market position will change because people form their impression of a company on the basis of its corporate citizenship practices rather than on financial factors. Um, Operational efficiencies will change. There'll be reduced material use and, and less waste. And companies with a good reputation for corporate citizenship will increasingly fare much better in the face of labour or environmental issues. As I said, we urgently need to totally change the way we think about every aspect of business. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way and let somebody who wants to change, who wants to really turn the world upside down, get past You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing abnormal can be. I'm one of those people who doesn't like normal people. I like extrovert weird people who think differently and it makes you think differently. So I hope you have a sensational week. I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I will be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful. Give it your all because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.